Okay. Wow. I can't believe it. Welcome to the review. Um, this is our special we're on Zoom and get used to it for the next few weeks episode. Um, <laughs> no, the real reason why we're here is talking about voting rights today. And I'm getting karaoke. I'm from Holland. There was just a silence and I was like, oh, I guess this uh, is... Which one's going to go? Are you going to go? Am I going to go? <laughs> I'm Alejandro de la Cerda. And, and who's, who's, who else is here? Um, Ethan. <laughs> no, I just said my name already, though. <laughs> okay, this is really... All right, do we, do we want to redo that? Do we want to redo that? Okay, let's try that one more time, okay? Okay. okay. You can go second. After okay. Getting... All right, I'll okay. go second. Who goes first? Okay, we got it. All right. Okay. Hi. Welcome to the voting rights special on the review. I'm Gideon Karaoke. I'm Ethan Pelland. And I'm Alejandro de Lacerda. And oh my, have we got a lot for you. This is a special episode of The Breakdown, our new segment. And we're currently conducting this via Zoom, which is causing a lot of the chaos that you just heard. <laughs> so with that said, let's talk. So on this podcast special of The Breakdown, I'm here talking with some of the panel about the modern fight over voting rights here in the United States. Before I get to the main portion of this, though, um, I'm just going to talk about the historical context to voting rights. So the idea that all citizens 18 and older should be able to vote is actually a pretty novel idea in terms of execution in our nation's history, as I'm sure many of you already know. In the aftermath of the Revolutionary War, states had full control over voting and who gets to vote. <coughs> Ooh, what was that? Um, no, don't say that. Do, do not say what I think you're going to say. Um, <laughs> back to what I was saying. In the 1770s, only white men who were landowners over the age of 21 could vote. The 15th Amendment, which was ratified after the, in the aftermath of the Civil War in 1870, and I quote, the right of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. This simple idea of not discriminating based on the right to vote because of someone's race wouldn't even last all too long after the 15th Amendment got ratified. Not too long after, racial discrimination of voting by way of poll taxes, literacy, fraud, and terrorism against black voters happened through the Reconstruction era, through the Civil War, especially in the Southern states. It would get even worse at the end of the federal government enforcing Reconstruction on the Southern states in 1876. Also, the 15th Amendment did not give women the right to vote. That would come much later in 1920 with the 19th Amendment. And Native Americans were not even considered to be citizens, let alone voters, until the Indian Citizenship Act was passed in 1924. Yeah, that's one they don't teach you in, in most U.S. history classes. The yeah, the, uh, did not realize it was 1924 until I did the research for this episode. Oh my goodness. Our education system, please improve. Um, okay. 
So I know that this is not a great picture I'm painting, because it isn't one. The history does start to get a little better from here. <clears throat> the 1960s were a turbulent era for many reasons, and, but what's relevant to this conversation from then is the civil rights movement in the Vietnam. And mentioning the Vietnam War might be confusing to some of you, but y'all heard me right, and I'm getting there. One of the pivotal demands of the civil rights movement was the end of racial discrimination in voting. The Jim Crow system of legalized systemic racial discrimination made it almost impossible for the vast majority of African-Americans in Jim Crow states to vote. Story short, on that demand, they fought and they won. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 enshrined the right to vote for all men and women over the age of 21 in federal law. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 which we'll spend a little bit of time talking about at the end of the episode, gave the federal government power to enforce voting rights. As for how the Vietnam War comes in, the draft age being at 18 is the main reason. It was lowered to 18 during the, the Second World War, and with the start of the Vietnam War draft, there was a push by young people to lower the age from 21 to 18 as well. Old enough to vote, old enough to fight was the slogan for this push, and they got it with the ratification of the 26th Amendment in 1971. Okay, that's a lot of history I just threw at everybody. <laughs> Any thoughts or questions before I move on to the main part of the episode? Um, it's def It's like hearing about the history because, you know, although we have like made a lot of progress, we also still have so much work to do in terms of voting rights, because, you know, it's become, quote unquote, like more convenient to vote. But, you know, the fight to make it convenient for everyone has gotten even harder or even like ramped up even more, I feel like. Yeah, and I get to talk a lot about that for the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Yeah, well, the obviously free, um, you know, Voting Rights Act, it was a lot more overt in terms of them preventing people to vote. But I mean, the, the mission was I've done, I've been doing research for one of my history classes about um, comparing kind of the aims and the methods and all that of, of the current kind of regime of, of voter suppression to the, to the one of the past. And in the end, the, the, the goal remains the same of basically keeping certain, certain people in power and keeping certain populations uh, systemically disenfranchised and preventing them from making their voices heard. So even though, yeah, sure, it's not, you know, poll taxes or literacy tests, it's still a single. Oh, yeah. And, oh, my goodness. I actually had a really fun um, reading on a literacy test. I mean, I'm sure you remember from even your history classes, they, they definitely taught you this. Like, the literacy tests were ridiculous. They were like, how many uh, candy, can like, sorry, not candy, how much candy corn is in this jar type stuff? And that's they, a quote-unquote literacy test. Yeah, the one I would see is they would, like, bring, like, these really complex portions of, like, state documents or usually the state constitutions. Yeah. A lot of people, honestly, right now probably couldn't, fully explain a lot of the portions of the, of the current constitution. Or, or, I mean, the you know, national federal constitution. But so basically they take these like really complex portions 
and they'd have to answer completely summary what does this mean of the state constitution for African Americans, but for whites, they'd ask them like, what's two plus two? Yeah. And actually a joke, okay, before we go any further, and I just remembered this, in one of my readings, it was an old joke from, uh, uh, from that era that some uh, black folk would say. And <clears throat> apparently, so like at that particular provision of you have to read the constitution and be able to analyze it at a crazy high level, so like in this joke, it's, okay, so a, pr a professor goes down south and um, wants to register to vote, a black professor, and he's there and he's registering to vote and they're like, okay, we're going to give you a literacy test. So he's taken into a room and they sit him down and they give him a part of the constitution to read and say, explain it. He does. So then they give it to him in Spanish. <laughs> French. <laughs> Then finally, they give it to him in Arabic, and he's like, "I know." By the way, oh, but in the, when he's given it in Spanish and French, he translates it perfectly. It's still <laughs> in those languages. Like, learned man. But then he gets it in Arabic, and he's like, "You know, I think my Arabic's a little rusty, but I believe it says Negroes can't vote." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's <laughs> and yeah, that 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 was the point of that. Anyways, that that uh, horrible old, jo old joke out of the way. Let's get into the meat of the episode here. So with all that basic context out of the way, let's talk about the fight over voting rights today. For the sake of our minds and my mind, we're going to divide this episode into two chapters. The tools working against voting rights and Shelby County Beholder, its controversy and aftermath. So chapter one, the tools against voting rights. Okay, let's talk about it. I am not referring to the people here, but rather to the methods. Some are almost universally agreed to be bad and are very illegal today, like the terrorism of the KKK against black voters during reconstruction or intimidation. Others are quite controversial, and we're going to spend basically the entire part of this chapter talking about them. Those are things like gerrymandering, voter ID laws, voter roll purges, very strict requirements on paperwork, and felon disenfranchisement. Let's start with gerrymandering, which is one of the oldest political dirty tricks in the book. I'll let the New York Times in it. Quote, Gerrymandering is a way that governing parties try to cement themselves in power by tilting the political mass deeply in their favor. The goal is to draw boundaries of legislative districts so that as many seats as possible are likely to be won by the party's candidates. Gerrymandering uh, in the United States is possible because of the post-census redistricting of legislative districts um, and it being mostly done by state legislatures with a few examples exceptions to that rule, like Arizona having an independent redistricting commission. There are two main methods to doing it, hacking and cracking. Hacking is where the map makers shove as many of the opposing party's voters as possible into as few districts as possible. Cracking is the, where the opposing party's voters are spread out among many districts and do not make a majority in any of them. Most gerrymanders that do not crumble after a single election 
tend to use a combination of both methods. Gerrymandering has been used and is still used by both major parties to gain the upper hand at the expense of what voters want. At the moment, most gerrymandered maps are in Republican-leaning states and thus benefit the Republican Party, not because Democrats don't do it, but because Republicans won control of the vast majority of state legislatures in 2010, giving them the opportunity to gerrymander more places after the last census. Many political scientists consider the current congressional map district maps in Michigan, Ohio, Texas, Maryland, and Illinois, along with the Wisconsin State Assembly map to be prime examples of gerrymandering. As for Wisconsin specifically, it, it's an interesting enough case where I'm going to explain it. Republicans in the Assembly drew up the current maps after winning in 2010 and won a supermajority. Even after Democrats made a clean sweep of all statewide offices in 2018, that supermajority held. That was very, very controversial at the time. I remember a lot of liberal-leaning folk being very mad at, at how Republicans did get a supermajority in 2018 in the state assembly. They did not even get a majority of votes for the assembly. <laughs> yes, I'm not making this up. You can search it up on Google or fact check me because I did check that out. Democrats did. Well, it happened in uh, North Carolina as well in 2018. Um, I'm looking at the maps right now. They got 49% of the vote statewide, uh, yeah. but they got 65 of the 110 seats. Right. So and, they get a majority in the state legislature, yet they don't even get a majority of the votes statewide. Yeah, and there's always going to be a slight discrepancy between the percentage of votes in, a, in the first-past-the-post system, which is what we use, essentially. For those of you who don't know that lingo, first-past-the-post is essentially get the most votes you win. And in those kind of systems, like the one we have here, it's very likely where, say, party A wins like 49% of the vote, but gets like 54% of the seats. That's not abnormal. It's really abnormal when you push supermajority levels and you don't get a, uh, a majority of the vote. Now, that's where it's fishy. And that's why a lot of political scientists consider Wisconsin State Assembly map to be a gerrymander. Yeah, that, that was a... A weird case there. But enough about gerrymandering, because there's a lot more to get into. So another controversial move concerning voting that some see as restricting voting rights are voter ID laws. Mm. It's a pretty simple premise. Elections must be protected from fraud. Therefore, you need a photo ID to vote. Tough luck. What makes them controversial are cases like North Dakota, where you need a street address to vote enough, a lot of Native Americans living on reservations do not have conventional street addresses. Instead, they use P.O. boxes. Or cases like Texas, where handgun licenses are valid voter IDs. IDs. The Brennan Center for Justice at NYU's law school did a new, uh, study to see the breakdown of voting age citizens who lack government-issued photo ID by race across the country. 50% of white voting age citizens lacked it. Well, that number balloons up to 25% with Black voting age citizens. But critics of the voter ID laws, like the Brennan Center, 
all of this as more proof, um, see all this as more suppressing the vote of racial minorities rather than preventing actual voter fraud, which I should note is very rare in this country. And actually, um, I do want to put attention back on the North Dakota case because Ethan actually mentioned it right before we started recording this. <laughs> and yes, and they actually, uh, last I checked and last Ethan, Ethan and I checked, they did, the federal courts did stop that from coming into effect. Well, because you'd be effectively disenfranchising virtually every Native American voter in the Dakotas. Yeah. It would have been, no, that one is basically politically indefensible unless you are talking about disenfranchising people, but don't call it a voter security measure. Okay. Voter ID laws aside, let's talk about voter roll purges. So they're also said uh, by critics to hinder voting rights. There, when voters, voting officials remove what they suspect to be ineligible voters from the voter rolls. Supporters of these measures say they merely clean the rolls of dead voters or voters who moved away. Critics say it hurts young minority and low-income voters who move a lot and may not notice that they have been removed. I should note that there are federal restrictions on this practice, like how they cannot um, happen very close to an election and that the person being removed has to have not voted for two federal elections in a row. And these are getting more common. We're going to talk a lot about, a little bit about why in a minute. And also, apart from all those things other people do, what about things that we might do to ourselves that other people enable? <laughs> Paperwork barriers. And these happen sometimes. And Take, for instance, Georgia and the exact match system. If you or the elections official with your paperwork made even the slightest error when registering, like missing a hyphen in your last name, your registration was just thrown out. And this came into the national spotlight in 2018 because Georgia's then Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, which for those of you who don't know what State Secretary of States do, they tend to be the ones managing state elections. That's the case in Georgia, too. So Kemp was in a high-profile and close race for governor. His office blocked 53,000 registrations to vote using this provision during his time there, 70% of those being from Black voters alone. And I really should take the uh, time to note that his main opponent in the 2018... <coughs> oh, my <clears throat> what did I? Uh, I was choking on my own saliva. That, that's the worst. Um, too much information. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways, I should note that his main opponent, Stacey Abrams, would have been the first black woman to be the governor of any state. Spare you the analysis of the governor's race specifically, as it's not extremely important to the story, but Kemp won. Yeah, Kemp is the governor of Georgia today. So yeah, that was, that is one that is commonly cited, the whole Georgia exact match system, it, as being horrendously discriminatory. I mean, 70%. And actually a reason that was uh, said as to why that disproportionately affected black voters is that uh, the 
elections officials are predominantly white and they would see some black names and say, spelt wrong, correct it, as in end up breaking it by attempting to fix it. And thus their registration wouldn't get through. Is a, is a, that's been cited by some scholars as to why this happened. Yeah. Any thoughts from the panel as I finish this up? Well, in addition in Georgia, so Georgia also used two other systems. So not just the exact match, which in the first place, honestly, personal viewpoint. But if you're, if, if you're using exact match, that's not great. But at the very least, what the state government should be doing is if like, look, exact match doesn't work. Okay, well, you know, obviously this person probably isn't trying to commit fraud. Okay, let's follow up. Let's call the voter. Let's email the voter. Let's send them, like, let's try to help them. What happens, though, is it, the point of exact match is it's, these are tools to prevent people from voting. For, so it's not really necessarily about, in my view, it's about protecting the elections. It's more so about the finding, like I said before, it was very overt in the past of how they prevented people from voting, but now it's much more covert. So there's like a, there's an aura of like deniability. No, it's about protecting the, the, you know, the security of these elections. If it was purely about that, they would be doing everything they could to make sure that anyone who's flagged by the exact match system would be followed up with and would be told, Hey, do you want to come into the office and fix this? Hey, you know, we're sure you're not trying to get fraud. Let's just make sure that like you're actually properly registered to vote. Um, the other thing was that Georgia's also uses the cross-check system um, to, to purge voters. And they also, in 2018, they purged, I'm ready for this number, 500,000 voters before the election. 500,000? Did I hear you right? Yes. So in all, all the voters that were purged, these are so voter purging is... Basically, they're taking as getting into they're taking you off the rolls because I don't know they, they think you moved or you died or whatever they they like they think that you know you're no longer legally allowed to vote wherever you were at so they remove you from the rolls. Problem was in Georgia they really weren't giving people proper notice and there were so many people that got purged five hundred thousand people and so. Part of that, yes, the exact match system, the 53,000 fits in that 500,000. A lot of those were also from cross-check. So cross-check, the way it works is, and I'll try to explain this as concisely as possible, but cross-check is a system that was developed by the Secretary of, by the former Secretary of State in Kansas, Chris Kobach. He's a frequent figure that comes up in this whole debacle of voter suppression. He was actually back in 2016, do you guys remember the whole, like, remember how Trump said, you know, there were th 3 million people that voted oh, yeah, in the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. So what he did when he came into office was he appointed a voter fraud commission. And one of the people on that was Chris Kobach. So oh. Kobach has made it his life's work to kind yeah. of design these systems and fight against voter fraud. Yet the... Um, kind of ironically, but the whole thing that was put in place by Trump found virtually no evidence of voter fraud nationwide. So, oh, actually, yeah. actually, can I interrupt you for two seconds before I forget? I should note that Kobach actually has an Arizona connection. Before he was Secretary of State, he helped, he was one of the people that helped write SB 1070, and that is an 
entirely unrelated conversation, but that is for Arizonans, uh, I'm sure you know what SB 1070 is, the infamous show your papers law. Yes, Kobach was one of the people that helped write that. And so anyone who's interested in kind of um, following up on some of what I'm talking about, a really good person to look at is Greg Pallast. He's an investigative reporter. He has spent the last pretty much 10 years investigating all these, these like the cross check, voter purges, voter ID, figuring out all the holes in the system and the way these things are designed to deny people the right to vote. So the way cross check works, and I'm gonna try to bring it up from their website, but essentially the way cross check works is it is a shared system. So secretaries of state in individual states, they have, you know, they're running the elections, so they have the voter rolls. So Georgia, you know, the Secretary of State, which Brian kept, he has the voter rolls. Chris Kobach was the Secretary of State in Kansas. He has the, his own voter rolls. So what they do is they pull all these voter rolls into a database, like a, a shared database system. And what they do is they go through and they try to find matches. And so what Crosscheck does is it says, hey, look, there's, say, Greg Jones. Okay, we think that Greg Jones is no longer registered to vote. He's no longer at this address. So we're going to go through our system. If we find another Greg Jones, well, clearly he's moved. So we're going to remove one of the Greg Jones from, say, Kansas because we think he's now in Georgia. Now, the problem is, is that the system wasn't very well designed, so they really couldn't tell if Greg Jones in Kansas and Greg Jones in Georgia were not the same person. And there's lots of people with, say, the name Greg Jones or John Johnson or Right. Like, there's so many people with the same name. And, and what happened was, was that Crosscheck was disproportionately removing minor Hispanic and African-American voters. So Crosscheck was in the other system that was used in Georgia before the 2018 election to purge a lot of these people. Well, yeah, <clears throat> thank you for talking a lot about Crosscheck. Yeah, that uh, uh, the episode was already getting really long, so I was not going to go into cross-check, but I'm thankful that you did, Ethan. <laughs> All right, so we, we can move to the, uh, to I think you were going to go further into um, a discussion of some other things. Oh, yeah, I got, uh, there's still a lot more to get into before, we, before we're done. So we're still talking about barriers on the, on, uh, to voting, and Here's the last one I'm going to spend any significant amount of time on today. Felon disenfranchisement. And this could probably fill up an entire independent episode because there's a lot to talk about here. But for the sake of the show ending sometime before the end of today, um, it's the practice of denying the right to vote to convicted felons. Most states have some sort of prohibition on those in prison, parole, probation, or post-sentence from voting. In Arizona, it's all of the above. So yes, even including post-sentence. And if you have more than one felony, it's permanent. You can't vote. Just if you have more than one felony, you're out. And these laws are sometimes criticized as being overly punitive and discriminatory as racial minorities are overrepresented in the prison system. Those few sentences just give you the most basic overview over anything that I could spend hours on because, oh boy, there's a lot on felon disenfranchisement there. 
Yeah, well, oh, Andre, you were on. I think, uh, obviously, the way that, um, you know, the narrative has shaped around criminal justice in the past couple years has, uh, you know, slightly turned around this conversation of, you know, giving uh, felons back their voting rights, which I agree with uh, uh, to some points. Um, but I also think the way that we talk about criminals, like, in such a negative way has also, you know, put a lot of damper on the conversation. So I feel like um, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, kind of rising, uh, talking about the situation in a more positive way, but also an influx of negative information that feels like is drowning out, you know, the positives to getting felons back their voting rights. Yeah. And, and yeah, you're right. The tide seems to be really shifting on this conversation. More states are, are the direction nationwide seems to be moving toward disenfranchising people less and for shorter. So there's a lot of moves in a lot of different states. Like I believe the biggest one I can think of was Florida. Florida had some of the most punitive um, voter right restrictions in the book. Essentially, you get a felony, say goodbye to your voting rights for good. Yeah, no, you can't vote no more. You get a felony, you're done. It's never happening. The only way to get them restored is if you went through the state pardon board, which was controlled by the governor and people he appointed. So essentially, you had to hope the governor was a pretty swell dude and felt sympathy for you if you wanted to vote again after getting a felony. Well, and like naturally, they had a million people with felonies. They were never going to be able to get through all those people through a, a commission that had to be overseen by the governor. So you had these absurd videos of a guy like who literally like has completely made himself, who is yeah. like a lawyer, represents, uh, he's like a public defender. He's created a criminal justice initiative. He's like, can I please have my voting rights back? And the guy's like, the governor's like, no. I, I just don't. I, I just don't think you, you you should get them back. And that's it. You, you're done. No more voting yeah. rights for you. So thankfully, they got rid of that system. But there's the thing, is that they still, even though, so they did a referendum back in 2018. Yes, so Amendment passed, Four. Yes, Amendment Four passed with. It passed it I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was it was it was obviously the state of Florida had made the decision. We should no longer do this. And it was very plain. Everyone should get their voting rights back, who is who previously did not have them because they were a felon. It did not say, and they should have to pay all their fines and fees. But that's what the Florida yep. state government decided to do, which happens, and this is slightly, this is a little bit of a tangent. I'll do it quickly. Yeah. Referendums in general are a very good thing in my view. I like participatory democracy. I like it, the idea that people can basically decide, you know, I think we, we as a state have decided that, I don't know, marijuana should be legalized statewide or yeah. we should give voting rights back to felons. Like we as a state think that should happen. But what happens oftentimes with these state governments are like, well, we're not, we don't agree with the decision of the public. So therefore we're going to undercut it. So that's what keeps happening is like in Utah, when they did marijuana, when they voted for marijuana legalization, they tried to like, they basically undercut it. Oh, oh by the way, it's medical marijuana, not medical marijuana. Okay. So medical marijuana, they undercut it and made it very difficult to get the license to be, to 
basically they did not really go with really what the spirit of the referendum was, and they did the same thing in Florida. So they made it to where you had to pay all your court fines and fees before you got back your voting rights. Thankfully, a federal judge in Florida overruled that and said that all the felons should receive their voting rights back. However, the primary justification behind this was, was that voting was a privilege, that they said, like, it was a privilege, and therefore they have to pay their fines and fees. Yeah. But Correct really, me. Wait, sorry. Correct yeah, yeah. me if I'm wrong, but I do remember seeing a Governor DeSantis tweet in the aftermath yes. of this decision saying that voting is a privilege. That's crazy that... Wait, I... No, I actually... I'm looking this up right now because I can't believe... I, like, I, I have to be making... Please don't... No, no, you're not. Gideon, you and I had this conversation when this was happening. I, I remember. Because, like, we... This was when they did the fines and fees. This was before the court decision. And DeSantis was talking about how voting is a privilege. Oh... Like, Oh my goodness. Uh, wait, give me a second. Go ahead. Oh my. So he's, okay, so I'm reading an article from a local um, political outlet in Florida, Florida Politics. And, there, and Governor DeSantis claimed he did not write it. So yeah, he said it was his staff that did it because he doesn't tweet. <laughs> Okay, well, he's still okay. I, honestly, it's still reflection of that view. And just for the people who are listening, anyone who's listening, when we added the list, the, the, the bill, it, w it was the bill of rights, not the bill of privileges. And so all these amendments, these are rights, not privileges. These are not things that are being given to us by the state. These are things that we have. These are things that we as people, as citizens of the United States have his rights. These are not privileges that we're, we are receiving from our, from our government. Speaking of privilege, I think that idea that some people think that voting is a privilege, um, you know, just what, uh, I think that type of ideology, you know, bleeds into a lot of other parts of American life. Um, you know, like if you're an American citizen, like it's a privilege, like um, it's like, there's so, I feel like American society has turned so many things that you know we kind of just take for granted in everyday life to be like well that's a privilege like you uh it's i think it's just an overall conversation where it's like it's crazy that we can't just like let people live their lives without kind of i don't know like figuring out whether they're worth it or not or whether something what they worked for it or not it's like i feel like we should just have some things naturally but the conversation has turned into more of a privilege type of conversation, unfortunately, I feel. Oh, there's yeah. a lot of overlap with the with people who think that voting is a privilege and the same ones who don't think that like birthright citizenship is a thing. Yeah. Um Yeah, by but, the way, for those of you who aren't constitute who don't know the constitution too well, please I, I I encourage you to read the 15th Amendment. No, the, sorry, no, not the 15th, the third, the 14th, it was the 14th, yeah. 14th Amendment, folks, the 14th Amendment, please don't. So, thing is, um, I, I just, myself, 
think, and I agree, I'm, I'm happy. You, you are about 100. This, it's, this kind of conversation has been drifting. I mean, we actually have, believe it or not, one of the pres- one of the still remaining presidential candidates, San- Bernie Sanders, actually has said that he thinks that everyone, even if you're currently in prison, even if you committed a felony and you're in prison, that you should be able to vote. So I think this conversation is shifting in the right direction, and I agree with Sanders. Yeah, I, I, I agree <laughs> with him that that I I don't think that just because you commit a crime doesn't mean that you are no longer any less of a citizen. Because I mean, if you commit a crime, you, you still have freedom of speech. You still have the freedom to practice your religion. So why is it that voting is also a constitutional right? So why is it that then that also shouldn't also remain a right that you have as a, even if you commit a felony? Yeah. And you know, that is a convincing argument. I know it is extraordinarily unpopular. If, if I went onto the street and said, hey, would you like, I, I can just imagine the political ad of anybody running against that saying like, I know. Murderers and rapists and, you know, all well, that. Well, they're not running for office anytime soon. So um, I guess if I'm, I guess if I'm ever running, they'll find this podcast and they'll put it out. But no, it's, and it's not like all the, all the prisoners should have come together and like vote to make all crime legal. I mean, they can't do that. <laughs> These people with families, they, they, Prisoners have families. Prisoners have rights. Prisoners are people themselves. They have legitimate interests still in society. So just because they're in jail does not mean that they no longer have any vested interests in society, that they no longer have legitimate, real, beneficial reasons for wanting to vote. It's not like, again, it's not like they're going to go out and, you know, let's go vote for the pro-crime candidate. There's no pro-crime candidate. Let's make stealing legal. Let's make murder legal there's just no one is running on that so most of these people are gonna be like i'm a prisoner i have a i have children i have grandparents i think i want to vote for the candidate protect social security or i want to vote to make sure my kid i don't know like i want to vote on a measure that makes sure my kids still have enough funding like for their like so i want to raise like i don't know property taxes in my, my in my locale to make sure that they have enough funding for my kids schools these are people that have legitimate interests still and just because again just because they commit a crime and go to jail doesn't mean they become less of a person or less of a citizen yeah i couldn't say it better um and yeah and well I, that's my view and that's ethan's view and I'm very well aware that does not represent anywhere near a majority of the population. Yeah, it does. Um, may get there one day, though. Yeah. We, as though, as a, a society, still kind of, I think, a hundred, right? We we seem to. We still have very punitive views on criminal justice. Of course, they're improving, but even just you go back like twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, I mean when we had like things like the crime bill, things like mass incarceration, they're still here today and still continuing. No politician wants to seem like they're too soft on crime. Soft on crime. Yeah. Like we we all like back in the nineties, there it was a competition to see who could be the most punitive, who could be the toughest on crime. And I'm thankful that that's shifting because I really just don't it's kind of a tangent, I know, off of the whole concept, but like, right? People, it's just because they commit crimes, does not make them less of people, and doesn't mean we should just, you know, throw them off, 
cast them off into throw away the key. Like that was a concept that we had. And I, except for the most extreme crimes, no, don't think that that should apply. Yeah. And I think, uh, although politicians have, you know, taken this more open view to how they treat, um, you know, prisoners and, you know, their approach to improving the criminal justice system, I still think we have like a lot of prominent politicians, like, uh, for example, like Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar, who on their campaign trial touted their criminal justice record, like every chance they got. But also, while they were doing that, they were also like, oh, like we want to improve our criminal justice system. But then also touting their record and being like, I locked up all these people. So <laughs> I should be president. So even though I think some of them are trying to improve, they still are kind of stuck in that um, legislative mindset where, or, you know, more people in jail means I'm a better person. I can do better at crime than you. So I think once that type of mentality stops, we'll get a lot farther. Oh, yeah, I agree. As, especially, like, considering that we lock up more people per capita than any nation on Earth by far. It's not, it's not even a competition. We no, and like, like, naturally, people will be thinking, oh, obviously, China and North Korea lock up more people, Iran. Like, even more, we lock up more people than, like, authoritarian police states. Yeah. That's just such a crazy concept to me. That it, it, our, it, it's a reflection of our approach to misdeeds and crime in general in this country is, is very punitive, always about punishment. Yeah. And I think there's a conversation to be had at, uh, about this that gets into more detail, but because of, you know, we are on finite time and such. I'm just going to say one last thing before we wrap up this, this part of the conversation. If, if prison could solve crime, the U.S. would not have any at the right. way to lock up people. You said it. <laughs> if that was the case, we would all be like living in a harmony and there would be rainbows everywhere and candy would grow from the trees, but that's not the case. You like the yeah. utopia, utopia memes. <laughs> yeah, it's like if, if this happened, this would what what society would look like. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we're going to take a brief ad break. We'll be back after these messages. Hello, everyone. Today's episode of the review is brought to you by Water Bottles. Don't hoard them. This episode of the review is sponsored by Oh Boy Cookies. Oh boy cookies, for all those times in your life you want to go, oh boy. Hi listeners, the products advertised during this ad break are not real. Please do not go try and buy them, they do not exist. I'm sorry, it was just a joke. Hope you enjoyed it. Hi, and welcome back to the breakdown on the review. Our voting rights special continues, and we're going to... This part's a lot shorter than chapter one. So let's, so now that we're done with talking about the tools against voting rights, let's talk about the Shelby County v. Holder decision, its controversy, and aftermath. So this was a, a Supreme Court case, a federal Supreme Court case, and it changed a really important part of the Voting Rights Act, which I mentioned earlier. The original Voting Rights Act required that states with a history of discriminatory voting laws submit their maps to the Department of Justice for preclearance. 
That provision was originally scheduled to expire five years later, but it was renewed four times in 1970, 1975, 1982, and in 2006. Actually, I believe in 2006, it passed almost unanimously through this, almost unanimously through Congress. It was a very bipartisan measure by the end. So anyways, this particular case came after Shelby County, Alabama, took the federal government to court, claiming that it's a double standard to subject them to preclearance when other jurisdictions are not, that it infringes on the sovereignty of the state of Alabama, and that Congress violated the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause by doing that, and the 15th Amendment, too, therefore violating their rights as a part of a state government through the 10th Amendment and Article 4 of the Constitution. Needless to say, the Shelby County decision was ruled in Shelby County's favor, and it struck down Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act with Chief Justice Roberts, John Roberts, writing in his majority decision, quote, there is no denying, however, that the conditions that originally justified these measures no longer characterize voting in the covered jurisdictions, end quote. This decision only knocked down the coverage formula, not the whole act. However, with that out of the way, federal preclearance voting, any voting changes made by the covered jurisdictions are dead until Congress updates the formula, which it has not as of the recording of the episode on March 15th. Did you read the Atlantic piece? Uh, which one are you talking about? I, I read The Atlantic now and again when I can yeah, get... Shelby, how Shelby Connor versus Holder broke America? I'm literally on it right now. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that one. Yeah, I, I read that one. Yeah, it, it really did. And I guess the conclusion to the scripted part of this episode is this one sentence that sort of ties everything up in a neat bow for everyone. So the gunning of Section 4 enabled just about everything I mentioned in Chapter 1. Mm. That, little that little decision that, uh, 68 pages long, by the way. <laughs> um, fun read if you got nothing better to do. I mean, we're all social distancing now, so I recommend doing it <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> but yeah, um, Ethan, I think that Atlantic piece is right. Uh, Shelby County enabled all these excesses that I mentioned. Everything, of course, with the exception of gerrymandering, which really was never yeah. by Shelby that's County. A, that's, that's a separate right. issue. Now, yeah, the, no. the, the issue with Shelby County, honestly, with Shelby County and all these Supreme Court decisions in the last seven, eight years or so on racial gerrymandering, on voting rights, all these things, it is essentially that the federal government has been defanged in its, in its ability to hold the states accountable on things like on, on gerrymandering, on voter ID, on voter purging. The federal government and the DOJ are very limited now in their ability to really hold the states accountable. So now it's up to these citizen groups. And unfortunately, at the very at the very center, in my view, it was very flawed reasoning from Roberts and the four others, four of the Supreme Court justices that voted with him on the Supreme Court in the Shelby County decision. Was that their line of logic was that these states 
are no longer, you know, engaging in the practices. They're no longer, you know, people are able to vote. Voter participation is up from the 1950s. People are able to vote. People, you know, racial minorities are actually voting. But what, like, why? Why were their numbers up? Because the federal government from the beginning was keeping an eye on these states and preventing them from doing the things that they had done in the past. So essentially, I think that there was a quote in that article from, from Ginsburg where she said it, it's the equivalent of throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're no longer getting wet. The reason why you're no longer getting wet, the reason why people weren't being prevented was because the federal government was stopping them. And so they used that, that line of logic to then get rid of the very thing that was preventing people, that was preventing the states from engaging in discrimination. Yeah. They, I mean, you're right. I mean, yes, racial minorities were not openly being suppressed from voting because the federal government was making sure that if they tried to submit um, some crazy provision that disproportionately impact racial minorities, it was immediately tossed out. Federal government doesn't have that power anymore, though. Yeah. And also, so the DOJ still has the ability on the books to kind of investigate and prevent some of the more excessive sort of discriminatory voter laws and um, districting measures. The problem is, is because it's being controlled by, you know, Bill Barr and before that Jeff Sessions, they're not interested. They don't care about doing that. They're not, they're not doing their jobs. So now it's up to basically the only people right now in the United States. And unless we get a different, a, a department of justice that is actually interested in wanting to do its job in terms of making sure the States aren't engaging in these types of discriminatory measures and, and practices, you need either a different DOJ to a new one to come in with, with actually cares about it or, but also right now all you have is these citizen groups. Now the problem is, is they don't have the resources that the federal government has. And so, and the Supreme court isn't interested either. So like you had this, um, this case that was brought to the Supreme court, I believe it was, it was North Carolina. They're gerrymandering. They're basically the way that they had designed their state legislative districts and their house districts. And in the case, it came to the Supreme Court. It was a citizen group. The Supreme right. Court said, sorry, this isn't our job. Like, we're not – this is not our jurisdiction to be dictating districting. Wait, so who are these – Wait, actually, sorry, Ethan. Sorry to interrupt, Ethan. No, correct me if I'm wrong. That decision just straight up said, we can do nothing about gerrymandering. There is no yes. – that has been brought to us is usable. So the problem is if the Supreme Court can't do anything or is unwilling to do anything, the DOJ is unwilling to do anything, the only thing that these groups have now are state, state Supreme Courts. That's yeah. it. And I think they actually did get pretty lucky in North Carolina. The state Supreme yes, because actually ruled in their favor. on this is insane. What these groups have to do, what the groups have to do is – under the current system of voter purchase, voter ID, discriminatory districts, they have to, get this, have to win the discriminatory elections to get 
people in office who either A, will appoint judges who actually will stop these measures, or they have to elect judges. So basically, so you have two systems. It's where either state Supreme Courts are elected, like, for example, Wisconsin, they're elected. Yeah. North Carolina, they're elected. Right. Some states, they're appointed by the governor or whoever, or the state legislature. So oh, Arizona to, is a weird mixed system. The judicial yes. system, the legislature and governor appoints them, but we get to vote yes or no on them. Yes. And so the way that you have to, again, as I'm saying, you have to win under the current system to change the system. But the system right now is discriminatory. So it's very difficult for these groups to get people, basically, the, it's insane, but they have to first win the the quote-unquote, rigged election to unrig the elections. And yeah, is, which sounds ridiculous. But uh, that's what they have to do because the DOJ is uninterested and the Supreme Court's uninterested. Yeah, and the system's not set up in a way for them to get the people who they need to win to turn back the tide. And when I know rigged, I'm not like saying like, you know, fake elections. I'm saying is it, it basically <laughs> that the odds are stacked yeah. And it's not really fair the way these elections are being run for, for minorities and honestly, for the most part, throughout the country for the Democrats. Yeah. And, oh my, yeah, the, there is a lot here. Um, and it does seem like things are slowly getting better, but in some ways they're not. And I guess my take is... They have to get better. I mean, we're talking about our democracy here. Start undermining it chip by chip just to win a partisan advantage or something. Soon, like gerrymanders are a pretty good example of you're just chipping away at democracy to, to, uh, to win a partisan advantage. It's like, is, is that healthy? Is that something well, to further our wonderful experiment here in self-governance or will it just destroy it? Will it just make people demoralized? Well, the problem is, is as is, the United States has less, has less faith in our democratic systems of governance than Greece. Yet Greece, <laughs> for anyone who knows, has not had a great decade. Yet they still have more faith in their own elections, and yet we have so little, and it's being chipped out away more. I mean, I have to imagine it's so depressing and disillusioning for people like in states like North Carolina and Wisconsin, where despite winning a majority of the votes statewide, you, you lose. You, too bad. I mean, you, you should have. People are becoming, it's very disillusioning. It's very frustrating and it undermines people's faith in the system. And also these things are not just, there's, there's not just a racial lens. It's also a class lens in, in the sense that, Poor whites are also discriminated against by voter ID laws, by these measures as well. It's not, they're not as affected, but they're still affected by it. Because we know who it's really easy to vote. In in this system, it's really easy for wealthier, older people to vote. For everyone else, it it gets harder and harder. If If you're of a certain race, it gets harder. If you're poor, it gets harder. If you're young, it gets harder. I mean, just the simple fact, it's, it's always all coincidental, but like if you look just at the, what happened in the last primary, the, um, the ones that happened on Super Tuesday in Texas, in, 
areas where there's wealthier people and where there's older populations, there's plenty of polling locations. They're not closed. So yeah. all those people, they're all able to go and vote five minutes. But at universities, one location. One location for a university of 40,000 students. So you have to wait 10 hours in line. And I know, it's, you know, sure, they're not overtly doing it, but that's, I think people kind of struggle with that idea of it's, it's not like their literacy tests. That's what we learned about in school, right? We think of voter suppression as these very overt measures. But in my view, anything that's designed to make it harder to vote is voter suppression. Yeah, I agree with you. It's like, especially with, actually, I do want to go back to voter ID laws for just a second to revisit that idea. Just to say, like, voter IDs in and of themselves are not suppressing. It's the context in which they're done. And that's everything I mentioned. All these things can be very benign. Anything I mentioned in chapter one of this episode yeah. could be very benign. Okay, except for gerrymandering. Ger- gerrymandering is just a political dirty trick. <laughs> uh, I hate to break it to y'all. But <laughs> the rest of them can be benign. Well, like, look, you're talking about, like, with voter ID, there's nothing necessarily intrinsically wrong with voter id it's it's not as if and i hear this a lot it's not like myself or or people who oppose voter id like yes we want illegal illegal immigrants to vote we want people who shouldn't be voting to vote no it's that voter id for the most part it's not really about really about seems like protecting elections it's the way these voter id systems are designed it, it makes it really hard to get voter id so like it's very yeah. arbitrary. Like in Texas, well, a gun license is, that's, that works. That's a voter ID, but a student ID isn't. A driver's license in one state might not be proper voter ID. You need like a specific voter identification card. All these hoops and barriers you have to jump through to be able to vote. If it was just, if voter ID was just, hey, you registered to vote, there you go. There's your voter ID. It, it should not be all these different hoops and barriers Voter ID is fine as long as it's easy and accessible for everyone to get it. Part of the problem, too, is it's like if you're poor, you don't necessarily have the time. I mean, that's part of the problem with with these long lines, with voter ID. All of these things, all these different hoops, these extra measures make it to where less people vote because they just don't have the time. So like if I'm working three jobs or i am got long hours I'm having to work, I maybe don't necessarily have the time to go to the DMV, provide all the proper documentation to receive a voter ID. I don't have time to arrange the hospital to get my my exact birth certificate. You know, these are all barriers that people have to jump and get through. If it was just, again, if it was just, hey, you turned 18, you are a citizen. You have something that proves you are who you are and you live where you live. Here's a voter ID. You are now registered to vote. Why can't it be like that? Sorry. No, uh, sorry. I think the way, as I'm hearing you guys talk about this, it's just, it's really kind of mind-boggling to me, the weight placed upon, you know, the shoulders of us as citizens to try to, you know, overturn these elections. And, you know, I, I think it's good that people are taking a uh, more active role in our, uh, you know, quote-unquote democracy and, you know, fighting for voting rights, but I just, it's hard to see organizers and activists and 
you know, people who are really, you know, in their communities trying to change, you know, constantly almost feels like get defeated. And then, you know, the next day they have to get back up because if they don't get back up, then no one else is going to do it. And, you know, there's only, I feel like there's only so many times that we can keep saying, oh, well, we can't um, become cynical about this. We can't do this. We can't do that. We need to keep going. Eventually, all the resources and all the possible paths towards improving our voting system are going to run out. And we can't just tell people, oh, you need to keep going. And that, and which is to me, it's like, at one point, you know, do things start improving? And at what point do people start becoming, you know, exhausted? And I feel like they already are. And if we keep going at the rate we are, you know, organizers are just, you know, can, the path is going to become a lot harder. I mean, there's nothing, I don't have any definitive takeaway, but that's just kind of something that was roaming my mind. Yeah, well, yeah. unfortunately, the honest is on us. It's on citizens right now to mm -hmm. combat these measures because, again, as I said, the Supreme Court, the DOJ, they're just not interested anymore. They don't either, for, whether it's it's really like they want, they, they actually like are doing it because there's like self-interest, regardless of what the justification is, is the simple takeaway is, is that we really cannot depend on these institutions anymore unless we either get new leadership in office or we do it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And that's extremely demoralizing for people because I mean, how many more times are we going to have these excessive lines at these, uh, these polling locations? How many more times are we going to be like, I, I mean, I'm starting to think like, okay, it, the first time they coincidentally closed a third of the polling locations before the election, like, ha ha, wow, coincidence. It's like, oh, well, this has only happened in the last five elections. Like, look what just happened in Maricopa County. Uh, two, yesterday they said, we're closing 80 of the polling locations of the 240. They did this back in 2016. The whole reason why we had this big um, change in our uh, voting system in Maricopa County was because Adrian Fontes is our current um, county red, uh, county recorder. County recorder. Yes, thank you. In 2016, the long-running county recorder. I'm trying to remember her name. Ellen Purcell. Yes. So they had 200 polling locations ready. 2016. They closed 140 of them. So there were only 16 polling locations in 2016. There were. I'm not joking. There were like eight hour lines to vote in 2016. It was a catastrophe. She lost. And so now we have Fontes. But again, you this still is happening. It's extremely frustrating because it should be as easy as possible to vote. If you are a citizen, it should be as easy as possible to vote. Yeah. And by the way, I really want to mention the 2016 presidential preference election, which was just a straight-up mess. And, like, for instance, actually, I'm going to use an example here. My mom, was that was her first presidential primary after she became a citizen. So she was registered to vote, and she was ready to vote in her first presidential primary. And lo and behold, she goes for lunch. She goes to the nearest polling location in a retirement community near where she works. And 
the lines were long, like no man's business. She, she only had lunch to do it. She's like, she look, took one look. She's like, nope, didn't vote. That's the problem. And I don't, I mean, okay. It's, I don't like voter shaming. I think we should be putting more pressure on people our age to go out and vote. Too many of us are, don't do that. But also we need to have an honest conversation as a country, what all these things are doing to prevent people from voting. Mm-hmm. This is really unfair to say, to shame students for not voting. They have to wait seven hours to vote. Right. The, it's like, it's like, people, like students have, we have school. We have yeah. school jobs. Many of us have jobs. Kids. Transportation may be an issue. Transportation. I mean, and the part of the problem too. So, Right now, the most most states they don't now. My view, elections should be holidays. I don't think it would be that big of a deal to say, "Hey, you everyone gets off. You still go to work, but everyone gets as much time as they need to go vote." I don't think that's a big deal for like the two or three times in a year that we all go need to vote. Like if it means that we get rid of some of the other days, like maybe, I don't know, we say no longer we have Memorial Day or we no longer have some of these other days that people get off. I just, I, everyone should at least get off the general election so that there's, there's basically no way that you don't have a reason to stay all the time that you need to vote. But also at the very least, we should also be having as many polling locations as possible. And we should be allocating proper funds and personnel to these places to make sure that everyone can vote. I, I, voting is, in my view, it's our most sacred, sacred right as a citizen. Is It is our greatest, when I use the word privilege, but it's the greatest thing we enjoy as a citizen. It's something yeah. that is so valuable. And so I don't think it should be a matter of like, What's the cost? How are you going to pay to make sure that everyone can? Whatever we need, that's what we devote to making sure everyone can vote. I think I guess my uh, sort of uh, final thoughts on this is the word accessibility comes to mind. And right now, um, voting is just not accessible for everyone, unfortunately. And you're, I think you're right on that, Ethan. You know, voting is such a kind of a joy because I just, you know, I just was able to vote for the first time in our democratic primary and I got my mail-in ballot a couple weeks ago, filled it out. And after I filled it out, I don't know, I just felt, um, I don't know, I just felt better because I filled in the ballot, I put it in the mail and I just felt like, I was like, okay, I, I did what I needed to do. I voted like, this is cool. Like everyone should be able to do that. And unfortunately people are not. Um, and until everyone is able to vote and in the same capacity the country has has to take a good look at itself in the mirror for a little bit so yeah that's how i see well it. this is something we pride ourselves on to the rest of the world yeah. i mean like responsible government legitimate elections access to voting, access to rights, things like that. Those are things that we pride ourselves on. Those are things that we say like to the rest of the world, look, these are the things that you should do. This is, these are the greatest pillars of a free and fair society. So 
if anything, if we want to like cast this, continue to cast this image of, of, you know, the city on a hill, uh, city on a hill, right? That's the, yeah, that's the, that's the saying. Yeah, that's the saying city on a hill. You know, the, America is the shining bright example to the rest of the world. We should be looking like, why is it in the city on the hill? The world's other than like, you know, of course, you know, Greece, like long time ago, probably the world's longest running democracy that we have a crisis of low voter voter turnout, a crisis of low voter participation, a crisis of legitimacy in terms of that. that that's something that we really need to think as a country, like how can we improve this? And, and it isn't, it isn't going to be, you know, oh, ha ha, young people don't vote. Let's shame them. It's, it's not one group, one individual, one institution. It, it, it is everything together. Yeah. It's contributing to this current, current crisis and, and, and all of these things need to be improved. At the government level, making sure it's as easy and accessible as possible. In civil society, encouraging voting. And as voters ourselves, looking at it, this in a more responsible and more civically engaged way. Yeah, couldn't say it better myself. Um, yeah, we do. We do have miles to go on this. Like, we might be a stable democracy and all that, which is great and um, puts us miles ahead of a lot of other countries. But that does not mean that we are perfect. We have so much work to do on this. We shouldn't. Uh, I think you all are right. We shouldn't be going around shaming, saying like, "Ha ha, you didn't vote." It's like. I think there's a Why difference. Didn't you vote? Exactly. We should. The most basic question: the Why didn't you vote? And how can we make it to where you will vote in the next next election? Yeah. I mean, we do frustratingly seem to view this is a kind of a dynamic we're having in this in this democratic primary. But this is a dynamic we have at large: is that we seem to view non-voters as permanent, like they're just they're never going to vote. Young people, they just don't vote. And so yeah. our government, it, I think it's like it's a self-feeding cycle. The government doesn't think, like politicians don't think young people and disenfranchised voters vote. So they don't try to cater to their concerns. They don't try to interest them. They don't try to get them engaged. And then those voters think, wow, they don't care about me. They yeah. are a bunch of corrupt fools. I'm not going to vote. Well, why aren't those people voting? They're not interested. They don't right. care about me. They're not going to vote. It's a self-feeding cycle. You need to break that cycle. And I really want to actually, I know we're really getting long on this episode. We are going to end this in a minute. But um, it, you actually remind me of this. So I'm sure both of you, both you and Alejandro know who Governor Jan Brewer is. Yeah. Former Governor Ducey's immediate predecessor, the previous governor of Arizona. Brewer, um, who I meant, who I briefly referenced in terms of her most famous accomplishment, SB 1070. Um, she said during the 2016 election, after she had been gone from the governor's office for a few years, she said that Latinos don't vote when talking about the chances of Trump losing Arizona in 2016. And I'm like, oh boy. Oh, boy. I mean, she's not in politics directly anymore, but Oh boy! For just to hear a former politician come out and say say that her say the yeah. theme on which she operates that that boldly, 
like that kind of theory that boldly. Oh my goodness. It was like a oh boy moment. And then, well, because it kind of reflects that internal thinking is, is they don't see them as legitimate constituents. Mm-hmm. Like they're not legitimate stakeholders and constituents in, in this system. And so they're, therefore they don't try to engage them. And it's crazy for her to say that because, you know, it seems like in this upcoming presidential election, Latinos, especially in Maricopa County, are going to decide, you know, where this state is in terms of, you know, the party line. Yeah. yeah. And I think kind of the crisis of strategy um, in, in both parties is, is that we're always fighting. Look, like we're always fighting over the moderates, the, the high propensity suburban voters who turn out. We're always fighting over them. That's like every election is about who can win that one small demographic. Why is it that both parties aren't trying to think, how can we engage people who don't vote? How can we get people who don't vote involved and engaged? Yeah. And I, I think there's so much more there than just fighting over this one same group of people every election. Yeah, and I can give you a really long answer on why that is so, but I think the easiest way to put it is money, and I'm not going to go way too deep into the weeds on that. It's just way more expensive to turn out non-voters is the point. Yeah, That is the primary reason why it's not a lot of effort made for it, because it costs too much money. Well, I'm just saying, like, as I said earlier, it, it, it shouldn't matter what the cost is. We really should be wanting, it's a crisis if like about 50% of your population is just not enfranchised and not interested in voting and participating in the democratic system. Oh, I agree. It's bad. I'm just saying that's the rationale. Yeah. Okay. This conversation went on for a while and I am so thankful you all are joining. I know Ethan, you're all the way in sunny and beautiful Hawaii. Yeah. I'm I'm hoping that, you know, I'm able to get back still. I'd I'd rather be at my home at my house back in Chandler when this all gets worse and you have, I think, an Italy type situation. Of course, I wouldn't mind being in Hawaii <laughs> for that, yeah. but you know, I just feel safer and more content to be back home. You know? yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah, I understand where you're coming from at this moment. And yeah, so I thank you both uh, for taking time out of your, we're actually recording this on a Sunday because it took me a while to write this episode, go me. Um, (laughs) we we appreciate um yeah i do want to announce something though before we do wrap up um we are suspending the radio show we have come to that decision because most of us are not going to be here and though i am on the downtown campus i am not planning to be here for very long so the cdc I got this alert during the show, but the CDC has announced that uh, they're recommending all groups meeting of 50 or more being all those types of events being canceled for the next two months. Yeah. Yeah. um, We'll talk a lot about the coronavirus in our next podcast. Yeah. We're moving to being a podcast only show. We'll be doing this over zoom, practicing social distancing folks. We're doing uh, all it. You are doing please. it. Please, anyone who listens to this, please figure figure out your situation. You know, get what you need. But when you kind of feel content, really, if do all you can to stay at home 
And even though you think, I know, there's a lot of young people like, you know, oh, you know, we don't have any chance of, you know, not, you know, catching this virus or like dying or, or suffering a lot from it. But think of your parents, think of your grandparents, think of the people around you. They, you are, you are a carrier for it. You can infect them too. So please be thinking of your families, be thinking of everyone around you too. Yeah. Uh, I guess, I guess to paraphrase a bad joke, we live in, we live in a society and because of that, we should, you know, act like it. Please, for the goodness, for the continued sake of our nation's healthcare system not collapsing and for the continued existence of the United States of America, please stay away from each other. <laughs> Do your patriotic duty, folks. Avoid people. Watch Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> Do a crossfit. Like, yeah. the New York Times has crap ton of crossword puzzles archived in their crossword section you can subscribe to it for like a dollar it's super cheap um yeah also most, most importantly listen to the review yeah listen to the review oh yes we will still be churning out episodes we're we're using zoom now which is actually what our wonderful college arizona state's using classes <laughs> so it's a, it's like practice for classes that we're going to start tomorrow um on monday morning yeah. Zoom. I don't know how that's gonna work, but it's. I don't know either, but you know what? I, especially considering I'm a journalism major, I don't know how we're doing this, but we'll figure it out, I guess. Nobody reads anymore, but this will make for a great book. This this will, and maybe I'll. I've I've thought about writing something about this. I have some ideas, but uh, uh, that's for another day. We'll talk a lot more about the coronavirus in our next episode. Um, I do not know when we will be doing it. We're. Fingers crossed we will still be recording it on Fridays, so meaning you'll probably have the episode hit your podcasting app on Saturdays on, or Sundays, depending. So not too much change from usual, just we won't be in person anymore. And we're, I guess we'll keep you posted on our social media. We're at The Review Blaze on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening to this extraordinarily long episode. If you made it through, uh, we love you. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Oh, actually, I do need to tell the panel, um, because I forgot to mention this in our, because we normally have a show meeting, but I'm going to mention this on air. I'm going to sh- shout her out. Um, my great aunt, uh, Shosho Jedi, she is a huge review fan. She oh so much. And Shosho, I know I, th- I thanked you over phone, but thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Hey, thanks yeah. to mom and dad for listening too. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, you all keep safe. Stay away from other people for the sake of our society and our country. Uncle Sam says you have to do so. Um, y'all have a good night I, and or whatever time you're listening to this podcast. This has been the breakdown on the review, our voting rights special. I'm getting karaoke. I'm Ethan Pellin. And I'm Alejandro de la Cerda. Thank you so much, y'all. Have a great time. We'll see you and you'll see you.